Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thanks for listening as together we begin another week of quarantine. Though written a year before the coronavirus pandemic, there are themes in Jericho Brown's most recent collection that address the body at risk. Later in the hour, poet Jericho Brown takes us through his book, The Tradition. First. May the fourth be with you. It's Star Wars Day. And there are worldwide virtual celebrations of one of the most influential movie franchises of all time. Much of the success of Star Wars is due to master composer John Williams, who has written over 18 hours of music for these nine movies. Our own Yoda of movie music, WABE film music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart is with us to share some Star Wars soundtrack highlights today. Welcome, Scott, and may the fourth be with you. And also with you, Lois. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Happy Star Wars Day to everyone. It is absolutely mind-blowing that John Williams, who just turned 88 in February, is still one of the most active composers in film and classical music today. He holds 52 Oscar nominations. He holds the most of any living person today, and he's second, just a little bit behind Walt Disney himself, and many more accolades on his resume. And he is still working, a great role model for productivity for all of us. Oh, a brilliant composer and a nice man, a sweet, generous guy. John Williams' career spans from the early 1960s to today. If you think about E.T., Jaws, Harry Potter, and Schindler's List, his music for films is among the most recognized and beloved by film audiences worldwide. And it's not only admired by the movie world, but also by professional classical musicians who find his artistry and craftsmanship on par with the canonized composers of music history. Yeah, I think this is a great point. As a conductor, I always enjoy preparing Williams scores, and it's fun to talk to professional musicians and students who are assigned a Williams score because they have to practice and like really practice because his music is challenging. It's interesting for everyone. Even the tubas get to play melodies in most of his scores. And of course, it has this kind of eclectic style about it that has a cinematic, dramatic sweep, but it also has deep, real artistic substance about it. Which is exactly why this music is as appropriate for the concert hall 
as it is underscoring films. Scott, I know in your film music class, you actually used John Williams' career as a historical marker in the unfolding timeline of film score history. Yeah, that's right. In this whole arc of film history that goes back about 120 years or so, we usually speak of these three general divisions of film music. After the silent film era, so roughly the late 1890s until the jazz singer in 1927, original soundtracks came into production and they were the norm. And these were pioneered by composers like Max Steiner and Alfred Newman and especially Eric Wolfgang Korngold in what we call the golden era, this time of the 1930s and the 40s during World War II. And they took their cue about composing for drama on the screen from European classical music of the 19th century. The post-World War II era gave way to an emphasis on more jazz and pop music. And a lot of this was financially motivated because they could make a lot of money, not only from drawing teenagers to the movies, but also from selling the soundtracks. But it was in the early 70s that Hollywood saw a gradual return to these large symphonic scores that we'd gotten to know back in the 30s. And these were largely John Williams scores like The Towering Inferno, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and eventually the big blockbuster of 1977, Star Wars. You've brought along some musical selections today for Star Wars Day. Where do we begin? Well, we could spend just over 18 hours listening (laughs) to all of the Star Wars music, but I thought we would start with some action sequences. These are all quote-unquote background music sequences for outer space battles and chase scenes. The Viennese émigré composer Eric Wolfgang Korngold once remarked that the immortality of the film composer lasts from the recording studio to the dub stage. (laughs) A rather modest take from him. He was commenting on the fact that a lot of great music gets mixed down in the post-production process. This is very different from composing for the theater or opera as he did. Very much so. And it's true that some of the great music that is written, we don't actually hear. It's a great reason to collect soundtracks, especially when it's of this quality by John Williams. Star Wars is a fine example of so many wonderful action scenes, especially these interstellar battles where dialogue and spaceship engines and weapons and explosions tend to overpower the music, even though the music is giving us a kind of general background of energy and excitement. Now, of course, we are operating under the agreement that we acknowledge that space is a vacuum and there's really no sound out there at all. Hmm. A stunning cue takes place in the 1977 Star Wars, A New Hope. Following Obi-Wan Kenobi's death at the hands of Darth Vader, the Millennium Falcon has to escape and they are pursued by Imperial TIE Fighters. is a wildly exciting scene visually and there's this dramatic burst of energy following the lightsaber duel but we really can't hear the intricacies of this music unless we pull the picture away from it here we have some riveting syncopations with a really strong percussion presence especially in the snare drum 
and the timpani. I also hear that signature John Williams brass section. He took a cue from 19th century predecessors like Hector Berlioz and Richard Wagner in associating trumpets and trombones with heroic moments. Yeah, there's another excellent battle cue in the following movie. This is The Empire Strikes Back, when Han Solo, much to the chagrin of Princess Leia and the always pessimistic C-3PO, decides to fly directly toward a mammoth Imperial Star Destroyer. So there's a lot of great comic banter here, and we kind of get the idea that this is low stakes and probably they're going to survive this maneuver. But there's lots of laser fire, and we don't always hear the great music that accompanies this scene. Here it is. attack from earlier had a kind of swashbuckling and space pirate feel, but this attack scene has a little more urgency and some higher stakes. We feel that swift tempo or speed of the music that Williams chooses, and there is this really impressive virtuosity in both the strings and the woodwinds. And then of course at the end we hear the brass make that triumphant declaration. This music doesn't exactly transcribe the rapid action on the screen in the same way that a cartoon might do what we call Mickey Mousing, where there's a high correlation of movement to music, but it does phrase the drama in such a way that our emotional experience is amplified by whatever the soundtrack provides. Mm. Star Wars 7, The Force Awakens from 2015, marked the beginning of the third set of movies filmed 10 years after the prequel trilogy, John Williams brought a bountiful harvest of new themes and action cues for this film. Yeah, Force Awakens has a lot of wonderful new music, and a lot of us have been waiting for it and waiting for it for a long time. This particular cue shares the ominous tone and fleeting motion of the attacking a Star Destroyer cue from before, but now we hear regular fragments of Luke's theme, which is the main Star Wars tune. And even though Luke doesn't really appear in this battle sequence, we understand that the good guys are represented by this music. This is the scherzo for X-Wings. <laughs> Scherzo for X-Wings was paired up on this soundtrack with the magnificent March of the Resistance, which winds its way through the last three movies and is heard regularly, if you happen to go down to Disney World, for the daily Star Wars shows. In a way, this music bridges that gap between all of this pure action music and the highly thematic character music for which Williams is very well known. Speaking of great themes, Scott, The Force Awakens introduced characters who would usher in the new generation of Star Wars characters, including Rey, Finn, and Poe, at the same time preparing us to say goodbye to Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Han Solo. Ray's theme is a brilliant composition, which is lovely to listen to just by itself, which is one reason I love John Williams' soundtracks, but it also has some interesting codes related to the Star Wars universe. 
It begins with a little galloping figure in the flute. Then it's followed by what I will call a chiming theme, which has marimba and vibraphone and piano and harp. Then the flute comes back and then we hear this really beautiful raised theme in two parts. to note. One, the opening galloping figure in the flute sounds a lot like the second theme in Dvorak's New World Symphony. And that's neither here nor there. Just a reminder that the great composers often tap into our cultural memory for inspiration and storytelling. John Williams fiddles around with these ideas and then comes in for the kill at the end with a sweeping presentation of Ray's theme before concluding the entire cue. theme ends with Celeste, the little toy piano, which often hints at magic or the supernatural. More clues for what's to come. Let's take a short break. We'll return with more about John Williams' music for Star Wars on WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In honor of May the 4th, Star Wars Day today, we're celebrating with the thrilling film music of John Williams. Let's get back to my conversation with WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. My sense is that when John Williams is writing, he's always mindful of the European classical tradition and he's mindful of the classic film composer tradition who grew up during the 19th century in Europe. And that has informed so much of his writing, but he's also been able to give a kind of contemporary spin to a lot of that music. And not to be forgotten that he studied jazz with Henry Mancini. So there's kind of some other elements that come to bear on his writing. But in this type of scoring, we hear this full lush orchestration and especially the use of these leitmotifs or character themes as a way to identify and grow and develop and relate all of these different personalities in the Star Wars universe. You'll remember from Star Wars 4, A New Hope, back in 1977, this glorious moment when Luke is out on the dunes and looking at the double sunset on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. 
I'm back in Bloomington in 1977. <laughs> Wait, was it the Von Lee Theater? I think where probably we saw yes. It. Yeah, it wasn't Star Wars four then. It was Star Wars. It was Star Wars, right? They didn't. I mean, it was not supposed to do well. <laughs> Go figure. And you were right. I had a friend in the music school who was a French horn player, and he was enraptured he was absolutely beside himself after he said you've got to see this it's it's wagner for today yes so much wasn't i was um just slightly younger at the time in north about an hour and a half but uh also went in elementary school and just i knew something had changed but i didn't have the words to articulate it but my dad bought me the double LP, 33 to 3rd, uh, album and with big Darth Vader face in the back. And uh, I used to conduct with my Tinker Toy Baton. I was in fourth grade. And so uh, yeah, it clearly impacted so many of us immediately. And this glorious moment, maybe one of the grandest moments in all of film history, is the Force theme. This is the, the Ben Kenobi theme or the, the, the leitmotif of the, the Force, the energy field that surrounds us all. And it first appears here in this binary sunset cue, but it makes its way around all the Star Wars movies to invoke the Force or the presence of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And you'll notice that it has this peculiar harmony that is pretty dark and serious at the beginning, but then there's a little sunshine that comes out at the end with that really bright major chord. Now, thank goodness for all these YouTubers and Star Wars conspiracy theory fans who put together all these crazy music mixes out here. This is a fantastic one, which actually combines Ray's theme with the fourth theme. Take a listen to this. It's subtle but brilliant. And what does this tell us? Well, one, that the character Ray is in harmony, and I'm making little air quotes right now, mm-hmm. literally with the fourth. And second, she is connected in to some kind of family way with some of the big players on the Star Wars stage. Now, we learn what her actual family connection is in the most recent movie, The Rise of Skywalker. It's remarkable that John Williams uses musical themes to tie together a storyline that spans 42 years. He also made a similar move in the prequel trilogy, beginning with The Phantom Menace in 1999. Yes, and that was the biggest gap between the movies, from The Return of the Jedi back to Phantom Menace. And that dealt specifically with the character of Anakin Skywalker, who we know grows up to be the quintessential movie villain of all time, Darth Vader. And when we meet Anakin, he's just this nice little boy, and we associate him with this theme. This beautiful tune is actually not super simple. It's kind of hard to sing, actually. And it seems loaded with a little baggage and a little bit of heartbreak and poignancy. And it's not until that cadence or the concluding resting part of the song that John Williams cleverly points to the real future identity of Anakin. I 
Aha! The music clearly points us to Darth Vader's theme, the Imperial March. We first heard it in 1982 in The Empire Strikes Back, and it is one of the most iconic villain tunes in film history. John Williams' compositions for Star Wars are not limited to the nine movies. While John Powell provided the bulk of the soundtrack for the 2018 spin-off Solo, A Star Wars Story, John Williams actually composed the Han Solo theme and conducted it for the soundtrack album. Yeah, Luke and Leah both received themes early on, but Han never had one until this origin story in Solo. And this has an appropriately youthful and roguish feel, and it's undeniably John Williams music with prominent French horns and this frantic action-oriented vibe. John Williams continues the Star Wars musical legacy with the Disney World and Disneyland theme park, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, this is a recent opening at both the Florida and California parks. And instead of drawing on the more than 18 hours of pre-existing Star Wars soundtrack music that he'd already written, John Williams composed new music for these new settings of the Star Wars experience. And he happened to win a Grammy Award this past January for Best Instrumental Composition. This is the symphonic suite from Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theme park attraction. On this Star Wars Day, it's a fitting tribute to composer John Williams for bringing us amazing action music, some wonderfully stirring character themes, and music that connects the entire Star Wars universe over 42 years. Happy listening and happy Star Wars Day. And may the fourth be with (laughs) John Williams for many years to come. And with you, Scott Stewart, thank you for a wonderful celebration. Thanks, Lois. My pleasure. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE Film Music 
commentator and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and is the conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. You probably know him as the carnivorous, mustached Ron Swanson of the sitcom Parks and Recreation. And while Nick Offerman and his fictional character may be different in many ways, they do both share a love of fine woodworking. Last Thursday, the Parks and Rec team reunited for a special episode to raise money for the Feeding America's COVID-19 Response Fund. Back in 2017, I spoke with Nick Offerman by phone, and he began by telling me that his home is furnished with pieces from the Offerman workshop. Just a note, Megan here is Nick's wife, the actress Megan Mullally. We do have a handful of pieces from my shop. As obsessed as I am with woodworking, Megan's equally obsessed with interior design. And so our house is her masterpiece. Oh. And, it, and, I, and I don't say that lightly. It is a crazy work of art. So furniture from my shop is but one of the colors on her palette. And I... I feel very grateful that we have our dining table and we have a big double desk. It's it's a long slab of maple that is our both of our desks side by side. And we have a four-poster bed made of white oak in the mm. guest room that one of our woodworkers named Michelle Diener made that's just a, a museum-quality piece. And then there's there's a beautiful little Japanese tea table made of cocoa bolo that I actually made for our wedding that now holds our little record player on on which we listen to vinyl. Ah, uh, you are not the character Ron Swanson, but you and Ron both are woodworkers. What is it about woodworking that can unite the likes of? You Midwestern theater kid with the government employee who hates government. The great thing about woodworking, like making anything with your hands, it, it doesn't matter uh, what's going on in your brain otherwise. If you're making lasagna or you're making chairs or you're making music or you're raising kids, you know, the, all the things that you can do that require craft and attention and uh, coordination. There's something absolutely bewitching to me about those things. Once you become a problem solver through making things, it makes your whole life better. Actor and woodworker Nick Offerman speaking with me in 2017, a Parks and Recreation special reunion episode was released on April 30th to raise funds for COVID-19 relief efforts. You can stream it on YouTube TV, Hulu, and other platforms. The Atlanta-based poet and Emory University professor Jericho Brown is widely recognized for his work, which explores themes of blackness, trauma, violence, queerness, and memory. He has won several literary awards, and his collection, The Tradition, was a finalist for the 2019 National Book Award. I spoke with Jericho Brown last August before his appearance at the Decatur Book Festival. Let's listen back to that interview as Jericho Brown first talks about the multi-layered meaning of fatherhood in his poetry. There are many ways to think about the word father in and of itself. Um, of course, when you say father, you're thinking about your dad, right? Uh, but then you might also be thinking about fatherland, 
right? If you think about father, that might be one way to think about uh, black people's relationships to the United States of America. In the diaspora, black people's relationship to anywhere that is in Africa uh, that black people are living, sort of a, a colonial relationship. If we think of motherland as, as Africa or West Africa or countries in West Africa, then the fatherland would be those uh, those nations that, that kidnapped people or that somehow uh, went to those nations in Africa and took them over, right? Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there's the father that we say when we're thinking about God. And one of the things that I do over and over again in my poem is I mix those three fathers because I'm thinking about that dedication and yet that rebellion mm-hmm. uh, that we all feel for any father that we have. Uh, you know, there comes a point at which you have to grow up and you have to take a stand. And I think that's how um, the word father works in so many of my poems. Uh, my poems are often poems of prayer, poems about prayer and poems as prayer. And I think thinking about God as the father is one of the ways that that's seen in my poems. Let's turn from fatherhood to motherhood. Yeah. I was stunned by the power of four day in the morning. Yeah. Would you read it? Yeah, I'll read it for you. Four day in the morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 40 in the morning, toss him in a truck, and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house, a boy to keep the lawn cut, some color in the yard. My God, we leave things green. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much. And and. It's rife with metaphor, but the the metaphor of women as flowers and also adding color and oh, it's just gorgeous. There are a lot of poems in this book uh, that are about my mother, and I was I'm actually quite proud that I finally got her right in a book. You know, um, uh, she appears in this book over and over again, uh, powerful and melancholy and joyous and I really feel like I finally caught all of the colors that are within the woman I think of as my mother and I'm, I'm really proud of that in this book yeah fantastic this particular poem was um, in Time magazine it was the first time they published poems probably in something like I would say 60 or 70 years maybe more than that actually and I, I got all excited because I finally had a poem in a magazine that I could send to my mama. <laughs> oh, so much uh, for those esoteric literary yeah, journals, yeah, 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 yeah. which you've done. You, you've done pretty well with those too. Yeah, Jericho, you've said that you think of writing first as a process of listening to some series of sounds that enter your mind, and second, as a process of embodying those sounds. Mm -hmm. What's the role of voice and music in your poetry? Mm -hmm. Well, honestly, I think uh, poetry is best made when it begins in listening. We like to think about, I mean, again, I'm talking about prayer. Often we like to think about prayer as talking or asking for something. But when I think of prayer, I think of an opportunity to listen to uh, some higher self, to hear these voices, I think, or, or a voice that I think can be heard by us when we are made still. And if I'm still and I allow language to come to me and I deal with language for its beauty, for its for what it what it sounds like as material. You know, often when you think of language, you think of something that you can touch. Different words have different literal material feeling attached to them. Um, just to say the love hate, the word hate, and just to say the word love 
you end up in two different frequencies, just hearing the words, you know. Um, so that's part of uh, what I mean when I, when I say that. Um, I'm listening and I'm paying attention to where the words lead me. And sometimes the word leads lead to sound. I mean, if you're working with rhyme in particular, you will end up saying a word because it rhymes with another word. And because you choose that word, you have to figure out what your subconscious is saying, right? What do you really mean? Why did you choose that particular word? And you have to believe that it's not just because of how it sounds. It's because there's something telling you something. And that's how my poems are written. They're written by the fact that I believe there's some sort of otherworldly or supernatural part of myself that's trying to get in touch with the natural part of myself, the part of myself here. I've heard uh, fiction writers and playwrights talk about something similar with characters Mm -hmm. speaking to them or Mm -hmm. coming to them. Mm -hmm. This makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Your poem, The Stake, Mm -hmm. confronts feelings of despair following gun violence. Mm -hmm. You write, how old will I get to be in a nation that believes we can grow out of a grave? Mm -hmm. Would you tell us more about this poem and read it, if you like? Yeah, I'll read it. It's um, it's a very different poem for me, um, and you'll hear what I mean by different. Uh, it's, it's what I like to think of as innovative. And what I'm trying to do is catch several images at the same time um, as it relates to gun violence, as it relates to police violence, as it relates to all kinds of brutalities that we somehow survive, right? What this book is, I hope, really interested in isn't just... Uh, looking at these evils, but also looking at how it is that we remain human beings who fall in love in the midst of these evils. And that's what I'm really interested in when I when I wrote this book. But let me, uh, I'll read Steak for you now. Steak. I am a they in most of America. Someone feels lost in the forest of we, so he can't imagine a single tree. He can't bear it across a crucifixion such a christian all that wood headed his way in the fact of a man or a woman who might as well be a secret so serious his need to see inside to cut down to tell how old will i get to be in a nation that believes we can grow out of a grave can reach climb high as the first state bank take a bullet break through concrete the sidewalk the street someone crosses when he sees wilderness where he wanted his city, his cross tie, his telephone pole, timber, timbre. It's an awful sound, and people pay to hear it. People say bad things about me, though they don't know my name. I have a name, a stake. I settle, dig, die, go underground, tunnel the ocean floor, root, shoot, up like a thought someone planted. Someone planted an idea of me, a lie, a lawn jockey, the myth of a wooded hamlet in America, a thicket, hell, a patch of sunlit grass where any one of us bursts into one someone as whole as we. Oh, you begin with in the very first line this matter of identity and mm-hmm. and being marginalized mm-hmm. or unseen and take us through current horrors mm-hmm. going on in this country you've addressed the proximity of violence to love mm-hmm. would you unpack that a bit mm-hmm. well you know when you're writing a poem and what i try to encourage my students to do is to be uh, as deep and complex as their lives actually are. Uh, And we like to think about poems as Hallmark cards, but they're not Hallmark cards. You know, the difference between poetry and and what happens at Hallmark is Hallmark is trying to capture a single emotion, right? Um, But nobody lives in a single emotion. Love is not love untainted. You know, your children get on your nerves. Your parents get on your nerves. Your brothers and sisters get on your nerves. Uh, your, your spouse gets on your nerves. Do you understand what I mean? But that does not mean you do not love them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, so what I'm trying to do in my poems is over and over again, 
put these things together because that's where they belong. We are human beings, and if we are indeed in touch with our emotions, if we're um, if we are um, okay with feeling our emotions, uh, then we're going to feel several several emotions in a single day. Um, the joke that I like to tell my friends is, you know, I have a, a, a meditation practice, a spiritual practice every day before I leave my house. I do some kind of prayer, but it doesn't take very long for me to get from my house into my car and around the corner to traffic before I'm this close to a cuss word. And that doesn't mean one of those is invalid. It just means that they both exist in the, in the single person. Hmm. It has been noted with the tradition that you invented your own poetic structure and form Mm -hmm. that takes features from many established forms. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who are not highly educated in the subject (laughs) of poetry, can you explain the duplex form? Yeah, I'll read read the cento to you. I'll, I'll, I'll first tell you what the form is. The form actually merges three other forms. The huzzle, which is a, a form from something like uh, eight or nine century <laughs> AD from Persia. The sonnet, which we're more familiar with, which was taken uh, from the Italians, uh, from Petrarch, and then moved on by Shakespeare and Milton and others during the Elizabethan era. And then uh, it also takes the blues form, which is a form that is wholly American and developed here uh, by women, as a matter of fact, Um, and then in poetry by Langston Hughes. And that form is a musical form, but also a poetic form. Mm -hmm. And I take that form, those three forms, and I put them together into one. And there's also a requirement about syllables. I mean, since I'm talking about it, every line of a duplex is nine to 11 syllables long. Oh, oh, wow. (laughs) So I had to approximate Um, syllabics and iambic pentameter. And that was the way that I wanted to marry East and West. You know, a lot of Eastern forms are by syllabics and a lot of Western forms are by rhythm. So I put those things all together and I made this form. And the poem that you're asking me to read, as a matter of fact, pushes it one step more toward difficulty. Uh, The last poem in the book is not just a duplex, it's also a cento. A cento, I'm sure listeners just love this. A cento is a poem that takes all of its lines from other poems. And so the difference between this cento and all the other centos in the world is you usually take those lines from other poems by other poets. But this cento takes all of its lines from the other duplexes in the book. So it's literally a, a, a poem made up of all the other poems in the same form. So I'll read it to you now. You get a college professor talking and that's what happens. Here we go. Duplex. Cento. My last love drove a burgundy car, color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they begin. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse. But I didn't want to leave a messy corpse obliterated in some lilied field. Stench obliterating lilies of the field. The murderer, young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable. Steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father was my first love. He drove a burgundy car. Okay, one need not understand the <laughs> complexity to feel the power of mm-hmm. that, but thank mm-hmm. you for the mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah, yeah. Finally, Jericho, I, I must ask, while many of your themes address issues of contemporary black life and the importance of folklore, mm-hmm. the ancestors, your work conveys reference to classical Greek poetry, to the examples, the very esoteric academic examples you brought us. Regarding the title of this beautiful collection, what tradition are you honoring? Yeah, all of them. Uh, The title is here because I have to be true and be honest about the amalgam of a man that I am. And Being black in this country or being really anybody in this country, but in particular being black in this country means taking on um, several identities. You know, I'm a black queer man from the South. 
I'm not what we expect when we say the word poet, even till today. And so I want to um, I want to make it clear that poetry in the English language, poetry from all over the world, um, Southern poetry, Black poetry, uh, that it's all who I am. Uh, and that's what's coming out in this book. Jericho Brown, the award-winning Atlanta-based poet and Emory University professor. His latest collection of poetry is titled The Tradition. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Mara Davis. She has some great ideas for Mother's Day celebrations during quarantine. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now available as a podcast, so you can catch us anytime, anywhere. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.